Hello and welcome to the Disgorge Podcast, a fun and spirited look at the world of drinking. My name is Zach Jabal. I am your host. And joining me today is Aaron James, the editor-in-chief of Sip Northwest Magazine and Cidercraft Magazine, as well as the author of the upcoming book, also called Cidercraft, which is a look at the artisanal ciders of North America. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so, you know, we're kind of getting into the fall season, uh, at least here in Seattle. And uh, not that cider isn't a year-round beverage, but I think for a lot of people, this is kind of the the beginning of cider season, what with the apples on the trees coming off and all that. Uh, so I think the, the first question I have for you, and I think this is sort of a really broad um, but interesting question, is it's my sort of perspective that when it comes to, to cider making, um, especially when you're talking about smaller batches and more artisanal ciders, that there are kind of two ways to go about it. Uh, you think you can kind Kind of make cider like you make beer, um, where the cider, the apple juice itself, is kind of the uh, base, and then the flavors that come from it or that come out in the final product are more added in during the ferment and uh, post-ferment process. Um, or you can kind of make it like wine, where the idea is maybe to um, highlight the varietal character of individual apples. Um, I don't know. Is that nuts, or does that sound kind of plausible? <laughs> I think that's that's a, a common thought, but I, I want to call it a misconception. Um, it's, it's honestly something that's a fairly contentious topic in the industry because if, if, I mean, cider's made like cider, that's how people, that's how makers want you to think about it. Um, but in the sense of production, I mean, it's still, it's, it's fermenting fruit. So whether fermenting juice from fruit, so, um, whether that juice is from concentrate, um, or picked, pressed and fermented, um, that's, that's different. So I, I actually would liken it more to like, uh, making Charmat or forced carbonated wine to, uh, traditional method, traditional method, sparkling wine, if you want to compare it to anything. Um, because the more commercial ciders you'll see forced carbonated and more traditional ciders you'll see having gone through secondary fermentation for those bubbles or no bubbles at all still. Um, so back to your point about how that the latter is a little bit more um, artisan or, or wine-like or craft. Um, I mean, they're all semantics always, I think, get in the way on what those things actually mean. But um, you, you make cider one day, one way with apple juice and yeast. Um, and then what you add in is, is um, your definition of a beverage, I think. Sure. But I mean, I, I think you could you could legitimately claim that that ciders and you think there's a fair amount of this on the market where there's any kind of flavoring added is definitely, you know, sort of more. I guess that's why I kind of go with the more beer like um, idea. I mean, obviously, like dry hop ciders have become kind of a big thing. And that's something that's, you know, obviously taken directly from the beer industry. Um, and with the idea being that, you know, you're you're kind of either supplementing or in some way highlighting the uh, already existing flavors in the fermented juice, as opposed to you know a sort of traditional method ferment uh, and a more, 
again, a more wine-like process. It's not, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I just think, you know, I think it is, when we talk about cider really broadly, I think it can be confusing to people because when you, when you sit down with a bottle of cider that is made in that first way or is, is made in a more kind of, uh, let's say austere style, um, really kind of clean ferment, really sort of, you're not getting a lot of, you know, there's not wild yeast involved. It's cultured yeast. You're getting a very kind of clean, crisp, pure product versus a more sort of wild ferment, uh, you know, heritage varietals where you're getting something that can be pretty funky, pretty unusual. Um, and so I think it, it, it's, I think it's important just from a, to, to keep kind of consumers in mind that, that, that you, as a, someone making cider or someone writing about it, talking about it, that you are able to draw those distinctions because they are really evident in the final product. Sure. But, but I mean, legally speaking, unlike beer and wine, there isn't, um, those bold, boldly drawn lines in cider yet, um, which is something that a lot of people are pushing for. Um, I, I think more, instead of saying like two ways to make cider, it's more kind of, um, the outcome in the sense of one being more commercially focused and another being more like, um, traditional, traditionally focused. Um, and that, that's kind of how a lot of people in the industry see it. Uh, there's a lot of more of the purist, um, traditionalists think that the more mass marketed commercial, faster production ciders, do they don't feel like it's necessarily in the same ballpark. So um, it's just interesting to watch this industry grow in that sense. And I think as far as the consumer goes, um, like everything with beverage, drink what you like. Um, if you like one specific uh, variation in production, which I, I doubt that people wouldn't necessarily be able to pinpoint one from the other, um, then go with it. And hopefully as the industry grows and people are drinking more cider in general, more education will follow with it. And that a lot of that would be in packaging and, and, uh, sectioning on the shelf and retail or, or lists. And, um, and I think that, that we're getting there slowly. Some places are more into that than others, um, retailers and restaurants, both. And it's just a natural progression of the beverage. And if, I mean, it's funny to say that with it literally being America's oldest beverage, um, but it's, it's still, as far as being in the market, really only been really present since, since 2011. So we're working and, on it. And what do you think, uh, has sort of driven that growth? Cause it's definitely, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, certainly here again in Seattle and, and I think probably across the nation, a growth of not only sort of the mass brands that you can find, um, you know, nationwide, but, but almost, it feels like in pretty much most corners of the, of the country, at least in the Northern parts where apples grow, um, you see, um, a lot, at least a few, if not a lot of, um, cideries popping up. What, what is, what is driving that growth? Uh, I think, I think demand or the option for, um, more craft beverage, the consumers demanding it. I, I mean, as far as getting in the market period, numbers, all numbers point to anger orchard. Uh, and I think a lot of people, as much as they don't want to admit it, or for the producers that have been around longer, um, Boston beer's angry orchard is, is really put cider on the map in a consumer sense. Um, and, and that's nationally speaking. It's did it, it most, even now surveys and polls, it's 60% of the cider consumed in the country is an angry orchard cider. So, um, a lot of it has to do with that booming in the industry and the demand for more and the demand for, um, I don't want to call anger orchard not craft because it, by definition, craft is still, um, 
means independently owned. So um, it's Bangor Orchard is still independently owned. Um, but I, I think that there's demand for more artisan products, um, again, semantics, but uh, more small batch, uh, orchard-based. We're seeing a lot of, of that come into the market, really pushing um, that I grow this fruit or I bought this fruit from this orchard as part of uh, marketing. And I think that's a lot for um, the craft drinker, the, a lot of what they're looking for. Um, did I answer that? <laughs> well, I think the only thing I <laughs> I would say is, I mean, to me, my perspective on this um, from within the industry is that the other the other big thing that's that's helped cider is uh, that sort of pernicious word gluten free, um, because I think that you know a lot of the the upward tick in the in growth is tied to say more people being aware of what that term means and shopping for that term, and now I start to see it on wine, which kind of cracks me up um, <laughs> because again, if you're all your wine should be gluten-free. I'm pretty sure it's made from grapes, uh, hopefully. Uh, and so, um, I just, I do think that, that, you know, no one wants to talk about, or it's not a popular topic, um, because of the, I don't know, the, the fact that it doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of what's being made. And I think it does it a disservice to just talk about the value of cider as something that people who were drinking beer and then got worried about gluten could drink. But um, yeah. I do think it's definitely been a part of it. Um, and oh, certainly. I mean, I think they say like 20% of the U.S. population is uh, avoids gluten or is gluten-free in some sense. So, I mean, by, by sheer numbers alone, that would definitely be a draw for it. Um, I'm not I, – I, I think that is – yeah, uh, yeah, a big part of it. I don't think it's the only part of it. Um, I know a lot with the craft beer drinker, who is most of the people that come, most of the consumers that come to cider come from the craft beer world, um, statistically, and it's uh, something that I think for craft beer drinkers, it's it's the artisan draw. It's the what's next, what's new, um, what's special, and and cider is really. Um, pushing that boundary and whether even if that's ciders that have passion fruit and citra hops in them or uh are made with kingston black like the the king of bitter sharp apples uh, i think that that draw of something new learning something new is really big for the craft drinker so you just threw out a name there and uh it's a nice segue into what i wanted to ask you about next which is um I didn't even do that on purpose. <laughs> no, it's it's like you're a natural. Uh, so besides uh, Kingston Sharp, which you mentioned, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, I think obviously one of the big trends, um, or not big trends, but one of the emerging trends in cider is definitely this idea of um, varietal labeling, um, using single varietals and apples, and, and obviously harkening back to um, sort of some of cider's heritage where the ciders were typically obviously made from not table apples. They were cider apples, which were um, much less sweet um, so that you, um, and, you know, carried more sort of flavor through the ferment, more kind of distinct varietal flavor. So, so what is, what are some of the ones that we're starting to see um, and what would show kind of a lot of promise? Uh, well, first off, I'm glad to see that you are calling them heritage varietals and not heirloom. Um, that's something that it's definitely still used or definitely used the word heirloom, but, but uh, I think, by definition, an heirloom is something that you could plant and, and get the same thing back. And you can't do that with apples. That's not how apples or apple trees are grown. If you planted seeds from a Granny Smith in the ground, you have no idea what would come up from that. Um, so cider trees are are um, uh, grown by varietal, by grafting. 
Um, and I don't think a lot of people know that about apple trees. So, so in that, um, there isn't an heirloom uh, apple or like a original American apple, uh, except for crab apples. That's the only indigenous apple variety to North America, uh, which is pretty interesting. So a lot of these heritage varietals or old, just old timey varietals are, are in most part English. Um, so a lot of the stuff that you're seeing uh, it only grows in specific places. I know you mentioned stuff grow, setter, or sorry, apples growing mostly in the north. Um, actually, growing apples in majority of the states, but the apples that are growing really well um, are of these cider apple varieties or English cider apple varieties are in areas that are more like like the West Country or uh, other larger growing areas of the UK. So. Um, Long story short, apples that grow really well in Washington won't necessarily grow really well in New Hampshire uh, and, and vice versa. So um, out here in the Northwest, you're seeing a lot of um, heritage, I would say our, our probably number one quote unquote heritage varietal you're seeing out in the Northwest would be Newtown Pippin, um, Gravenstein, and um, we're, we're growing, people are growing Kingston Black. But you see more of that, that tradition, it's a traditional uh, bitter sharp cider apple, um, an English one. You'll see more of that on, in the Northeast than anything. Um, and then um, russeted apples, like golden russet, you'll see a lot growing out here. You'll see a lot of russets in um, Michigan. Northern Spy is another one. You'll see lots of that in uh, the Great Lakes area. Um, there's um, a lot of kind of old time famous Virginia apples, um, Newtown Pippin coming originally to the States in that area too. Uh, you'll see, um, yeah, I would say probably actually the ones that I rattled off are probably what you'll see mostly on, um, ciders for single varieties. Um, uh, and some crab apple stuff too. Um, but that, that's about what you'll see mostly right now. It's, it's hard because I mean, we live in the commercial apple capital of the country in Washington state. And it, what you see mostly growing here are, are culinary grocery apples like Fuji and uh, Granny Smith and, and the evil Red Delicious. But uh, those are all things that were when they ripped out cider apple trees in, during Prohibition, they kept and um, proliferated cultivating these trees uh, the culinary apples more than anything. So you see those still just booming right now because the grocery market demands it. Um, and there just isn't that much access to cider apple varietals, but more and more farmers are planting that more and more cider makers are planting orchards. So it's, it's certainly on the up and up. Um, there's a couple test orchards of, of, um, growing these, varieties. Um, Washington State University has one in Mount Vernon. Cornell has one. Um, there's a big um, test growing area in Oregon as well. So they're happening all over the country, Texas included. Um, so it's fun to see that people are putting money and time. It takes like five to seven years to grow an apple tree and, and pull fruit from it, really. Um, so putting money and time into seeing cider apples, apples specifically grown for cider production, uh, coming into the ground. So, and, and really, and kind of quick overview, what's the principal 
uh, advantage uh, in terms of the end result to using uh, apples that are really uh, meant for cider as opposed to using, you know, fruit or juice from table apples. Yeah, it's complexity. Um, Using um, culinary fruit, it's big, juicy, high in sugars. Um, So that's why you'll see uh, most most, um, apples, period, are high in sugar. But you'll see, um, that's why you'll see alcohol percentages closer to like an IPA, um, like 6.8%. And why they raised the um, legal regulation of what is a cider and what is an apple wine. It's now 8, well, it's about to be 8% nationally. Um, which is great and big news um, that happens on December 31st. Um, is, we're already there in Washington State, though. But um, that's, uh, I think, the complexity is the number one thing. It's it's not quite like saying, like, you wouldn't make wine out of Concord grapes. You'd make them out of Cabernet. Look, um, but... Aaron, I drank a lot of Manischewitz as a kid, okay? <laughs> well, Mazel Tov. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, but I mean, it's, it, well, then, you know, yeah, <laughs> so I, trust me, I know it's not quite saying that, but, but that's kind of the thought is that the uh, apples that are meant specifically for cider production produce cider or, you know, it's one of the things that I really liked. I've heard a couple makers say is apples with intention. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a UK standard or French standard cider apple variety. If it is a apple that shows all of the characteristics that would create a more complex cider than that is an apple with intention for cider. So a lot of the uh, apples actually in Virginia in particular are heritage varieties. They've been around for hundreds of years that we've known um, and, but are also culinary apples, but they're super high in acid or they are, they're really bitter and they have some crazy tannins, but they're, they're kind of fun to eat and they're great for pies or so on, stuff like that. Those, I, in my opinion, are still apples uh, with intention and that would make really great complex ciders. So you need the, you need the right acidity, you need the right amount of sugar, um, you need a tannin for structure. And um, it's not necessarily the different fruit profiles that come from the different varieties, although that is something um, I think it's more the, the structure that those components offer to making a complex and complete cider. So it sounds like we're really heading in a in a wine direction. And I have kind of a wine related question on this, which is it just occurred to me, like, do you see um, in the same way that you would with with wine grapes, um, individual cider makers making different decisions about when to pick apples um, where like, you know, just as with, like I said, with, um, with wine grapes, two different winemakers trying to make two different wines might pick um, grapes from the same exact vineyard at different times at different levels of ripeness. Are you seeing that in cider or, or, or do people kind of wait for apples to basically be about to fall? I I, I don't, I, I genuinely don't know. Uh, in, in all honesty, I'm not the, the greatest expert on that. I would say probably the latter. Um, you, you want them to be ripe because the varietal, it, 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 it's different with grapes because they're, they're much more, um, fickle. Mm-hmm. The apple is hardy. Like that's why it's one of the oldest, um, fruits on the planet. Like it's just, it's, it's hardy. It's, uh, and it lasts through a lot, including, uh, varying, harvests or, or springs. And, um, so it does, I think, I, I think that they would wait until it was ready to drop. 
Sure. Um, in in the UK, they they do let them drop, and that's when they're ready. Okay. Uh, but FDA doesn't allow that here. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I would that would be a better question for a grower or a maker. But it, it, what I've seen, it's not necessarily. They're not, they're not going in and picking them early by any means. Gotcha. Um, you sort of touched on some of the differences in varietals that are grown um, in different parts of the U.S. Um, are there different approaches in terms of um, style or, or technique uh, when you look at, say, ciders from the Pacific Northwest versus Great Lakes versus Northeast? Um, or are most of the differences, if they do exist, come down to the varietals that do best there? Um, both. Definitely, definitely both. Uh, you'll, you'll certainly see more traditionally influenced ciders in um, the Northeast. Uh, you'll see a lot more barrel aging than you would out here. Um, you'll see more varietal driven ciders, although there, a lot of the artisan makers in the Northwest are, are doing um, more of those varietal driven ciders. But like we said earlier, we're in, we're in the apple capital of the country. So ha the lower priced, higher produced culinary apples are much easier to get your hands on. And so you see a lot more uh, innovation here in the sense of, of what they're infusing their ciders with. Hops, blackberries, marionberries, um, different saison yeast, um, carrot. <laughs> uh, the world's first ginger cider came from Eagle Mount in uh, Port Townsend and the world's first hop cider came from Anthem in Salem, Oregon. So it's, um, you see a lot of that innovation come out here because they're working with what they have. They have this base, this culinary apple base that they know isn't that complex. So they're, they're being able to create what they can with what they do have. And a lot of that um, influence or inspiration does come from the beer world. Going back to our earlier conversation, um, and uh, I think that's probably the biggest difference between the two coasts is that you'll see um, a, l a little bit more traditional production in the Northeast where they're steeped in that history. And then um, a lot more in the, on the West Coast um, where, where we're wild and known for innovation out here. So, and that go it goes both ways. You'll definitely see hop ciders in Virginia and you'll, you'll definitely see single varietal barrel aged wild ferments in, in Oregon. So it's, uh, it, I think that it, that's generally speaking, not wanting to leave anybody out or, 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 uh, push anyone in that other direction. So. Mm -hmm. So your, your book is, uh, kind of, uh, going to cover the, the whole gamut of, I, of North American cider. And I'm wondering, you know, do you, do you find that, um, that, that some of the sort of differences in style and the differences in approach are, um, are those, I guess what I would say is, are they increasing or is it becoming a little bit more, um, you know, some of those regional differences, are they starting to um, not disappear? I mean, you kind of alluded to people everywhere making kind of ciders in a lot of different ways. So are we starting to see more of a like, it's less about where you're at and more about like, Hey, what are you trying to do? And you can be in Washington and try and make a, a totally traditional European style cider, or you can be in uh, New Hampshire and trying to make something wild and crazy. Um, is that, I mean, since you're really touching the the whole spectrum of cider across the country, does, do you think, do you see things, the, those regional differences increasing, decreasing? Is that nonsense? <laughs> It's not nonsense. Um, I think that the, 
it depends. Um, I think that uh, I think regional identity is something that uh, people would in the industry would like to achieve. Um, like AVAs with wine, um, maybe not to that um, specific degree, but um, I think that <clears throat> I think it does matter where you're getting your fruit from. Um, cause like I said, like, a, I mean, if you, if you bit into a Kingston black apple here and you bit it in Washington and you bit into a Kingston black apple in, in, uh, upstate New York, I think that they would be pretty similar, but I think there would be, there would be some terroir that would apply to that. Um, and so I think regional identity is something that people are wanting to achieve, but I don't think, I think that you can make a some a specific um variation of, st of cider here and make a similar specific variation of cider in upstate new york um so i think that answered your question sorry the fedex guy came in and he just slammed everything around so i caught <laughs> most of that question <laughs> no worries i think you got there okay <laughs> um so uh speaking of sort of the sort of national cider market um actually just news uh Yesterday came out um, that uh, Seattle Cider Company, which is the largest cider company here in Seattle, surprisingly, um, sort of merged uh, or just is in the process of merging with uh, Agriel, which is a French co-op. Um, and, it, you know, parsing the language in a in a press release is a skill for um, <laughs> people in our line of work. But it does sound like a lot of this is about them trying to really get um, those brands into the broader national and maybe even international market. Um, do you, you know, we talked about, you mentioned Angry Orchard and obviously Angry Orchard is the big boy that's that's kind of everywhere. And there's a few others. And obviously there's also some European ciders, um, British in particular, that are kind of available nationally. Do you, do you sense that there is a market for region, uh, uh, ciders from a specific place in parts of the country that are not that place. Like, I feel like there's, there's a, you know, at least here again in Washington and not to be too provincial, but, um, there's a lot of home hometown, home state, home region pride. And, and I think there's a lot of resistance to, um, any kind of artisanal product that's, um, made other parts of the country. Does that, is that something that's true? Do you see some of the, the, the bigger or the more promising markets for, for those kind of artisanal brands to be, parts of the US that maybe don't have as much robust cider production. I mean, I'm sure most states grow apples, but you're probably not getting a lot of artisanal cider in Florida, say. Um, although it could be wrong, I don't know. Or cider makers in Florida. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that, I mean, I, I haven't had a chance to uh, speak with anybody at Two Beers in Seattle Cider just yet, um, but what I've been reading and the announcement they made and, and the press release and, and the Washington Bear blog story, uh, is that it, it seems like, like you said, it seems like a move to get the cider out more internationally. And they, they already are in a couple international markets. Um, but Seattle cider is one of the top six largest independently owned cideries in the, in the country. Another Northwest one would be two towns. Um, and, uh, so these guys are moving and shaking and they're still, uh, still, um, ran by the same people. I know with Seattle Cider Co, its point was to keep the quality going, but, but I mean, you can call it a merger, but this is a sale. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I think that was a really big thing. And um, same as when Woodchuck sold a couple of years ago to, to Heineken, I believe, and uh, Crispin uh, in like 2012 to Miller Coors. 
Um, I think they're all good signs for the industry. Um, I know with any sale craft that, that didn't sound totally company. like you were convinced. No, no. Oh, well, I'm getting, well, I, it, I do think it is. I think it's good for the cider industry as a whole. I, I, like I was about to say, I think that the craft drinker, they always tend to be heartbroken when this happens. Um, but I think as far as what it's going to do, um, for regional cider is a good thing. I mean, Seattle Cider Co. has Washington apples or Washington State apples, um, something along those lines, big font on the label. It's one of the first things you see. So I think as far as pushing a regional identity goes, and uh, I think that's that's a good move forward. Um, I know I've talked to Golden State Cider before in um, Healdsburg area, California, and they that brand, they have a higher-end brand that uses just Healdsburg or Sonoma County apples, and they have um, Golden State cider that uses exclusively Washington State apples. And although it's a California cider maker, they they source the fruit from Washington, and that is a major marketing um, effort or or um, I don't know push for them is they put Washington State apples on the Golden State apple or Golden State cider packaging. So for them, even though it's Golden State, California, they are they think it's a big um, selling point to say that the fruit's from Washington. So um, I think that that the regional identity can give some clout, and I hope to see that that grow even more. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with the regional identity and understanding that, oh, of course, Virginia Hughes uh, crab apple that that is one of the like um, defining apples of Virginia, and it's by Virginia Maker. Cool. I, I really want to see what this is supposed to be like, like you would say in reaction to, oh, cool, Napa Cab. So it'd be, it'd be great to see. I'd like it. to be clear. I don't ever say, oh, cool, Napa Cab, but someone might. <laughs> I mean, I'm never like excited that I'm surprised <laughs> about it, but I do like some Napa Cabs. Yeah, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like Napa Cab sometimes too. But yeah, um, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's that, like, it'll be so cool to be able to say that someday for a cider. Absolutely. Um, I just sort of, question. <laughs> that's okay. You're, it's a conversation. I'm not, it, that doesn't have to be a, a point by point answering of my questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say one of the things that's interesting to me too, um, from sort of uh, not so much from a journalistic perspective, but from a restaurant industry perspective is sort of this um, idea and ability to um, add ciders, especially, you know, sort of more unique, interesting ciders into beverage programs and, um, I'm curious, do you have some sort of favorite um, cider and food pairings? Is there stuff that you really enjoy um, and and sort of think is um, where cider is maybe the optimal pairing um, that maybe people are not currently thinking about? (coughs) Excuse me. I think cider is the best pairing because it really can pair with everything. Um, Back to what we were talking about, how um, the complexity of cider or what makes a cider complex is really the structural components. So it, what, depending on the level of sweetness with the cider that you're drinking, it really can pair with so much. And there's, there's few pairings that are better than, than cheese and cider. Um, obviously depending on the cheese and depending on the cider, which ones go to better best. Um, but, um, I mean, I really, I would drink cider with everything, but my go-to pairing, huh, I don't know. I would say like an orchard-based cider, so something that's very um, varietal character-driven and dry and probably tannic. Um, I would like to have that 
with beef. Like you would uh, going back to that Napa cab. <laughs> um, but I think that the cider pairs so well with um, spice and uh, Asian cuisine, Indian cuisine. Um, I think I'm trying, I'm racking my brain of all the recipes. We Every issue of Cidercraft, we do recipe pairings. So we have five recipes paired with five um, ciders. Oh, barbecue is awesome. Again, with a, with a pretty dry cider, or you can, depending on what you do, if you're doing a rub, okay, let's, let's talk ribs here. If, okay. you're doing, if you're doing a rub, you're going like Texas style ribs or Austin style ribs, you do a rub and you pair it with a dry cider. If you're doing something with sauce, which is like just an atrocity in Texas. So let's move to like, like Carolina style like, barbecue. Yeah. Isn't one of those, but the, isn't one of the Carolinas vinegar based, whatever. If you're going sauce based, it's, it's better. to we'll, go s- we'll save that for my other podcast. Yeah. The debates of barbecue. Um, well, if you're going more sauce based, you'd want to do something um, more off dry or semi-sweet um to match with that sweetness but also all ciders are going to have that acidity well all ciders should have that acidity that will cut up or slice through that sweetness of the sauce so um i'm trying to think like i mean i eat a lot of cheese so that's my first go-to is cider and cheese or cider and mac and cheese <laughs> excellent well <laughs> we're, let's be clear the mac is just a vessel for the cheese anyhow it, it really is so or a grilled cheese uh <laughs> So one kind of last question for you, which is as far as um, serving and um, I guess sort of preferred vehicle for cider, um, do you notice, is there much of a difference? Obviously, you're starting to see more and more places have some, at least some cider on draft, um, or at least it's a possibility, obviously, you know, cans, bottles, those kinds of things. So both from sort of the, I guess, the uh, the uh, vessel that the cider is in when it leaves the cidery or whatever, um, and then also serving as far as glassware. Any any particular strong feelings or thoughts of what people should be uh, keeping an eye out for? Like, hey, if you're in a place and they do this to your cider, they maybe know what they're doing or they have no clue or whatever. Um, it it depends. I mean, the the like like with higher end beer and with wine. Um, you want a, a thinner glass always, um, tapered glass will help, um, to, to angle up those aromas. A, a, a wine glass is a really good rule of thumb for drinking cider. Um, I, uh, I think it's, who was I talking to? Bruce, I think it was Bruce Nissen at Jester and Judge, um, in, or LD Beverage Co. He's in, uh, Hood River area. And he says, if it's a Tuesday night cider, I'm going to drink it out of a pint glass. If it's a Saturday night or celebration cider, I'm going to drink it out of a wine glass. So I think it comes down to what you're doing and uh, what you're drinking it with. But um, anything that's going to be able to help release aromatics um, like it would be for wine is going to help the cider be received in the way it was intended to. So, um, but... I mean, I drink plenty of ciders off draft in a pint glass. I drink plenty of ciders off draft in a wine glass. Um, I think that, I mean, it will probably come down to where you're drinking it. But if I'm at home drinking cider, it's in a wine glass. But that's because I'm usually taking tasting notes and I need to be able to smell everything. Excellent. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, we will, of course, keep an eye out for Cidercraft Magazine, which uh, is uh, available nationwide. Yeah? 
Yeah, yeah, we're um, on display right now, the current issue, which came out last month at, uh, bar at like 450 Barnes and Nobles nationwide, which was huge. Uh, in the Northwest, Whole Foods, Met Market, uh, PCC, New Seasons. Uh, that's the same for SIP Northwest as well. And then I have to do, uh, plugging my book real quick, it'll be out in uh, fall 2017. So get excited, you have a year. <laughs> just enough time to uh, to start planning for uh, all the cider that we'll drink, uh, not just this winter, but that one as well. Once again, Aaron James, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, thanks, Zach. If you're interested in learning more about cider, wine, and drinking in general, visit my website, www.vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V, where you can check out upcoming classes and events. Remember, the holidays are closer than you think, and gift cards are always available. Thanks again to Aaron James, who you can find on Twitter at AaronJamesNW, as well as SipNorthwest.com and CiderCraftMag.com. As for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at ZJabal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, as well as on the web at vinetrainings.com. Thanks for listening to Disgorged, and cheers.